Welcome back to Spain, 1959-1992. Um, I see a few new faces here, so I, I'll just give a quick recap of uh, what we covered in past lectures. So, um, uh, in my first lecture, I talked about economic development um, and political dissent in the last decade and a half of Spain's um, Franco regime. So, that, that was the 1960s to the mid-1970s. And then last week, um, I looked at Spain's transition from dictatorship to democracy. And I stopped in 1978 with Spain's new constitution. The 1978 constitution, wrote historian Raymond Carr, um, which established a dem democratic constitutional monarchy, was the first Spanish constitution which was not imposed by a party, but represented a negotiated compromise among all major parties. So I'll start off today's lecture, which is on institutions of democracy, king, president, parliament, and autonomous communities, um, with a short video. And I hope it works. There's a second one. So that was... Um, that was the 23 February 1981 attempted military coup in um, Spain. Um, and as it com it's commonly referred to in Spanish, um, it's the 23F. So that's two years after Spain's constitution was passed. So a group of civil guards stormed in um, the Spanish parliament, as you saw, and took all Spain's members of parliament hostage, as well as the government, for 17 and a half hours. Parliament was then debating a new president. And meanwhile, as this was going on, in Valencia... Uh, Spain's third largest city, the general in charge of the military region, um, declared a state of emergency and ordered tanks onto the streets. Back in Madrid, rebel army groups took over the national radio and TV stations for about 90 minutes. So what we just saw is the secret footage of a live military coup. The 23F footage, I think, is a good way for us to start thinking about today's book, so the literary section we're going to cover first, and, uh, and also that will then lead us to think about institutions of democracy. So I'll just quickly give you an overview of the structure for today's lecture. Um, I'll start with the book, which is Javier Cercas's 2008 um, novel, uh, the Anatomy of a Moment, or oh, Anatomia del Instante, which was then translated in 2011 by um, Anne McLean as The Anatomy of a Moment. And the reason why I showed you this video first is because his book is inspired in um, this footage, in this secret footage. I'll then go on to discuss what the reasons behind the military coup were, um, and answer or try to answer today's question, which is, were Spain's institutions of democracy um, homegrown or were they foreign imports? And to finish off this, the lecture, I'll use... Hello. Um, I'll you, um, discuss how to use CIA reports in historical research. So on to today's literary text. So, so this is a screenshot of one of the key moments in the video I just showed you. And note the word moment here. Um, and 
So that's the screenshot. And this is Javier Cercas' book cover. So that's the book. Um, so what we see is that the screenshot becomes Javier Cercas' book cover. So you can't see it very well, but um, the, perth, the man who's sitting uh, in his bench is President Suarez. Um, the man who's standing up is um, the Deputy Prime Minister General Gutierrez Mellado. And uh, we obviously have the civil guards here on the right. We also have, um, so everyone's, uh, everyone's hiding, everyone else, except these um, two men are hiding under their seats. But there's another third uh, person who's not hiding, and that's the Secretary General of the Communist Party, who we've talked about in previous lectures. So these three men are, well, one's standing, the other two are sitting, um, but they're not hiding. And that's what... Javier Cercas wants to talk about. It's this precise moment where these three men don't hide but actually confront the coup. So these three individuals are his book's protagonists. And they're very different individuals. Two are old, one's young. Uh, two are former Francoists and one's a revolutionary. Now, I know we've been told not to judge a book by its cover, but I actually want us to do that today. And the reason I suggest that we do is because, um, in, for this book, it gives us a lot of insight into the book's um, structure, its plot, uh, what sources it draws on, and what literary genre it belongs to. So the cover features Pre President Suarez and Deputy Prime Minister um, Kenneth, General Gutierrez Mellado. But what about Carrillo? He's the other protagonist. Where is he? Is he even featured in the book cover? And I suggest he is because the screenshot is actually taken from where Carrillo was sitting. So even though he's not actually featured in the book cover, he somehow is because we're seeing the, this whole image from his perspective. Um, and these three individuals then go on to have three separate chapters. I also want to draw your attention to image quality. Basically, it's blurry. Now, why would you use a blurry image for a book cover? Is, it, is that compelling? Um, so, what I, what I want to suggest is actually that part of the answer is to do with the fact that this is the moment Javier Cercas wants to dissect in his book. So, um, the anatomy of a moment. Incidentally, it's it's sort of strange to dissect or um, dissect a moment. You normally, in anatomy, you deal with living creatures, not with these abstract, intangible things. Um, so, um, oh, in, in your handouts, you have, I think it's the first um, excerpt, and I, um, which I want to read out to you, because it actually... Um, and it's repeated, the, this image is repeated throughout um, the book. Um, and, it, and it talks about this precise moment. So the frozen image shows the deserted chamber of the Congress of Deputies, or almost deserted. In the centre of the image, leaning slightly to the right, solitary, statuesque and spectral in a desolation of empty benches, Adolfo Suarez remains seated on his blue Prime Minister's bench. On his left, General Gutierrez Mellado stands in the central semicircle, his arms hanging down at his sides, his back to the camera, 
looking at the six civil guards who shoot off their guns in silence, as if he wanted to prevent them from entering the chamber, or as if he were trying to protect his, um, the body of his prime minister with his own body. The whole scene is wrapped in a scant, watery, unreal light, and this will actually lead us to talk about genre. So the whole scene is wrapped in a scant, watery, unreal light, as if it were going on inside an aquarium, or as if the chamber's only illumination came from the Baroque cluster of spherical glass lampshades that hang on from one wall in the top right of the image. But if we unfreeze the image, so here the author is playing around with freezing, unfreezing an image, so he's also participating in the action. Um, so, but, but if we unfreeze the image, the stillness vanishes and reality regains its course. Slowly, while the shots grow more intermittent, General Gutierrez Mellado turns, puts his hands on his hips, turning his back on the civil guard and on Lieutenant Colonel Tejero, and observes the abandoned chamber. So to go back to the book cover, um, the blurry image reminds us that the book's main source is the TV secret footage. So this idea of the scant, watery, unreal light um, is repeated throughout um, the whole book. And that leads us um, to think about genre. So the blurry um, cover leads us to think about the blur between fiction and reality. Um, and perhaps helps us answer, or at least think about, whether Anatomia de un Instante is a novel or a history book. Now, Cercas acknowledges that he initially wrote a novel about the 23F, but then realised that there was no point in turning the 23F into fiction. It was already surreal enough as it was. And so he, he writes, history fabricates strange figures, frequently resigns itself to sentimentalism, and does not disdain the, the symmetries of fiction. So um, there's symmetry between history and fiction in his view. Um, Cercas admits that this book is not a history book, and no one should kid themselves and search it for hitherto unknown facts or relevant contributions to the knowledge of our recent past. But still, it will not entirely renounce being read as a history book, nor will it entirely renounce to be read as a novel. So it's sort of a hybrid genre. And we, saw, and we um, should put this, uh, this book into Javier Cercas's um, work more broadly. By the way, he was um, the visiting professor for European comparative literature here at Oxford last year. Um, so, in his work prior to um, Anatomia de un Instante, um, is a novel which it too mixes fact and fiction about the Civil War, and it's called um, The Soldiers of Salamis. So, both explore memory, um, mix fiction and reality, and in a way, it's as if his previous uh, book was the start of a historical period because it's to do with the Civil War, and this book, The Anatomy of a Moment, it's as, it's as if it were ending a historical period. And um, these two books are written within the context of Spain's 2007 um, historical memory law. Um, the books, in the book's epilogue, which Cercas decides to call his prologue, um, he tells us 
that he wrote the book to help him better understand his own father. Um, Fergus's father, unlike Fergus himself, um, was a, a President Suarez supporter. And once Fergus asked his father why he trusted Suarez so much, and his father answered, because he was like us. He was from a small town. He'd been in Falange. He'd been in Acción Católica. He wasn't going to do anything bad. You understand, don't you? And in fact, in his book, Fergas constantly emphasizes this idea of President Suarez being um, from like, his small town background and juxtaposes it um, to what he calls the great sewer of Madrid and calls Suarez a non-entity, Chisgarabis, which is a rather unusual word in Spanish to use to, def to talk about something that's rather normal or just common. So the use of an uncommon word to describe something uh, normal. Now, I know we're not supposed to judge books by their covers, and I already um, suggested that we should, but I'm also going to suggest that we um, not only judge once today, but actually twice. So, here we go. We have the UK edition um, to the book. And what I want to suggest is that uh, they're actually quite different. So the UK edition has, um, it's not a blurry image, so you might perhaps not see it very well, but um, the very high quality image of uh, a man with his weapon, so quite a powerful image, um, and uh, at the Speaker's rostrum, so taking over Parliament, taking over democracy, um, and Spain's national colours. So that is quite different to the Spanish edition. And what I want to suggest is that it not only um, tells us something about who the readers might be, because would the British public find a blurry image with unknown people compelling who they don't know? Well, probably not. So we have something that's um, very compelling, a soldier taking over Parliament with Spain's national colours. So we, we sort of know what, um, what to expect from the book. But I also want to suggest that um, the two covers actually emphasise quite different things. The UK edition, on, one hand, on the one hand, emphasises the attack on democracy, whilst the Spanish edition um, emphasises the defence of a democracy under attack. So they're slightly different things. In his 1982 paper, Spain, a Fragile Democracy, historian Juan Pablo Fusi discusses the reasons behind the 1918 military coup. So what's this all about is the question we need to ask ourselves. And he writes um, that there are three, or he lists three reasons both historical and current factors, um, and says one's the, the process of growing disenchantment, desencanto, to use the word in vogue um, at the time with democracy felt in Spain in 19, uh, since 1979. Um, the interventionist tradition of the army, which we've talked about um, already in previous lectures. So that's the second reason. And the third reason is the effect of Basque terrorism and its connection with that of most sensitive of Spanish problems, the regional question. 
So let's unpack this idea of, dis of disenchantment first. Uh, Fusi notes that the national apathy towards politics is not unusual in long-established democracies. So in a sense, it's as if disenchantment um, comes from uh, nor normality, democratic normality. So democratic consoli consolidation um, is linked to disenchantment. Disenchantment perhaps also comes from exhaustion. Now we need to think about um, the historical context in the sense that Spain um, or Spaniards had uh, voted in two referenda, two general elections, several regional and local elections in just over two years. Now, um, coming from a context where there was very limited partisan engagement in public life, um, these two years sound particularly exciting and probably quite exhausting. Um, and then there's this other idea that disenchantment also stemmed, uh, stemmed from a false sense that democracy would solve every problem. So perhaps like uh, independence for post-colonial countries might seem like um, that's the solution to every problem. And Carr writes, Spaniards expected the mere installation of democracy to solve every problem, from structural employment to pollution and access to education. So from the poverty of Galicia to the pool of unemployment in Andalusia. And he calls this the psychology of great expectations falsified. Carr ends his um, 1980 edition of his seminal work, Modern Spain. If you haven't read it, I definitely recommend you do. Um, with a warning. Provided the rules are respected, neither Spaniards themselves nor foreign observers of Spain should exploit disenchantment so that it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It seems like this happened, or we just saw, happened um, a, a year later after he published his 1980 edition. Um, that would be a disservice to Spain and to Europe, he ends. Um, so Carr also adds, in relation to the idea of army, um, the, the tradition of army interventionism in Spanish politics, he says that though individual individual generals thunder against democracy because they were. They were <coughs> writing in the 1980s. They would publish articles saying that um, how they weren't, uh, um, they were, didn't agree with the, the legalization of the Communist Party, how the government was derailing, it wasn't doing what it needed to do. Um, so individuals, individual generals were actually um, speaking against democracy. And he says, it is not probable, however, that the army as an institution will intervene in Spanish politics. First, there is the loyalty of their commander-in-chief, the king, to the democratic process. And second, the army is imprisoned by its own political theory, so its own political culture influences um, the army's actions. And he says this because um, the army generally rep uh, thought of itself as, as the saviour um, of Spaniards in opposition to the, the nation's corrupted clique of selfish politicians. But this, of course, in the 1980s, does not sustain itself because Spaniards were voting. So the army could not decide that it was um, representing the national will. So how does this 
whole 23FN, we don't actually know. I mean, we do know from our perspective now, but what exactly happened? And it's related to the army's um, political culture uh, because uh, it's the king who goes on national television um, in the early hours of the morning in his full military regalia as general captain and orders the army to disengage. So, it's that, so he says, um, the army should be loyal to me and I am loyal to the constitution. Uh, and the army itself should be loyal to the constitution. Um, in order to think about the third factor uh, behind the 23F, uh, what Fusi calls um, the effect of Basque terrorism and its connection with that most sensitive of Spanish problems, the regional question, I think we need to address um, a broader question, which is, were Spain's institutions of democracy homegrown or foreign imports? Spain's fathers of the constitution, so its framers, looked to Spain's republican past for ideas, both of what to do and what not to do. Um, and I can think at least of three ways in which this was done. Firstly, um, it was to do with government stability. Um, they wanted to address also the roles of president and prime minister. And then there was a third issue, which is the one that's mostly connected to the reasons behind the uh, 23F um, military coup, and that's regional autonomy. So we'll start with the first one, uh, the um, government stability during Spain's Second Republic. So it was a very unstable um, system. There were 18 governments in just over five years. So that's about over three governments uh, per year. So not exactly stable. And um, according to Charles Powell, who we've also talked about in previous lectures, in the late 1970s, European Parliament rapporteur with Spain, Maurice Faure, recommended Spain adopt a proportional representation system, so like the West German model, rather than a majoritarian system, which was actually better suited to well-established democracy. So because Spain is not a well-established democracy, he says, go for um, proportional representation rather than majoritarian, a majoritarian system. And he also says, um, or they, they also, um, Spain's constitutional framers um, also think that it's best to ensure government stability um, in opposition to the um, non-stable government in, during the Second Republic to make sure that uh, the no-confidence vote is constructive. So when you put forward a no-confidence vote in, in Parliament, um, to make sure that there's an alternative. And that's also like the West German uh, model. Now, to do with the roles between president and prime minister in Spain's Second Republic, um, they, were very, they weren't well delineated, and there were tough war wars between, between them, um, between these two, two roles. Um, but the 78 constitution ensured that there was no such overlap between the head of the state and the head of government, so between the king and the president, um, partly because the king had no powers. Um, and also, the, president, the presidency of the government was greatly strengthened. And in fact, Paul Haywood, a politics professor um, and, the, and uh, the author of uh, a book called The Government of po uh, and Politics of Spain, which is part of a series, a general series on other governments um, in, in different countries, 
um, he suggests that the Spanish constitution marginalized both king and parliament, because unlike Westminster, the president appoints all cabinet ministers, and this means that cabinet ministers need not be members of parliament or even party members. So uh, their fate is linked to the president's fate. Um, if the president falls, the cabinet ministers all fall. The Spanish prime minister is thus not primus inter pares, so the first among equals, but rather an ambiguous head of a strong executive, which Hayward calls quasi-presidential premiership. Um, and the parliament um, was comparatively rationalised in Antonio Barr's words. So the third uh, issue um, that Spain's constitutional um, framers in 1978 looked to Spain's Republican past was for inspiration um, to do with how to deal with regional, um, regional autonomy. So during the Second Republic, um, Catalonia in 1932 and the Basque Country in 1936 uh, were granted self-government. So at the end of um, the 19th century, um, Catalonia and the Basque Country are the most industrialised regions in Spain. And they're also the regions where there is an emergence of, well, uh, national movements are emerging. So during the 1930s, uh, the Second Republic grants statutes of autonomy to Catalonia, to the Basque Country, after a referenda are held in both regions. And Galicia, too, obtains a statute of autonomy, and there's also a referendum there to approve the statute of autonomy. Um, but these, uh, in these three, well, in the Galicia um, example, it wasn't actually put into action because the referendum took place only like three weeks before the civil war started. So there was no time. But what I want to emphasize is that in just under four years, the Second Spanish Republic passed three statutes of autonomy. That political power should have to be decentralized was a shared conviction among the 1978 framers. So the birth of a new territorial framework. Yeah. Um, so this gave birth to a new territorial framework in Spain the state of autonomies, Estado de las Autonomías. So all regions under the Spanish constitution have a right to self-government. And uh, in practice, a consensus soon emerged that the most sensible course of action was to divide the whole Spanish territory into autonomous communities. So um, there are 17 autonomous communities, plus two autonomous cities in Africa, Ceuta and Melilla. Self-government meant that... Uh, uh, these regions would have legislative and executive, an executive branch, amongst other things. But there were two tracks to autonomy. There was a slow lane and a fast track. And um, whether some regions took one or the other actually depended on um, their, the past. Um, because Galicia, the Catalonia and the Basque Country had already had referenda in the 1930s, it was... Um, taken for granted that, or it was decided that um, they would enter the fast track. Now, Andalusia in the south um, 
also wanted to join the fast track, but because it, not, it had not had a referendum in the 1930s, it had to uh, hold one uh, in, uh, after the Constitution was passed. So these are instances of constitution of um, cont continuity of institutional continuity um, with from the Second um, Republic to um, Spain's 78th Constitution. So it's as if uh, we were just going back to where we left off, as if the Franco regime had not been there. That was the idea. Now, um, also to do with the re with um, regional autonomy. There was an instance where there was continuity, and that's to do with Navarre, uh, Navarre and Alava, uh, which is about Basque province in northern Spain. And what happened there is that during the Civil War, Car um, the Carlists, who were um, a very conservative political movement, supported, and who were based in, in these areas in Spain, supported um, Franco during the Civil War. So he granted them um, self-government, and that um, settlement... Um, was carried on during, uh, well, into the 1978 constitution. So Spain's dismantling as a centralised state was a source of great unease to the army, who believed it their duty to oversee and defend Spain's unity. But it was not just autonomy. Terrorism, too, gave rise to serious concerns inside the army. The Fusi writes that it was only because terrorism was linked to the regional question um, that it became a threat to the stability of Spanish democracy. So it wasn't just about there being terrorism. There was terrorism from left-wing um, groups uh, and neo-fascist terrorism. But it was the fact that there was another group, Ida, who was um, who linked terrorism to the regional question. And in fact, in... Um, uh, Edda killed 12 military officers in just, just the, in the year 1980, so the year before the military coup. Now, the statistics show that the escalation of Edda terrorism actually began in 1978, as the constitution was passed and as uh, the Basque provinces had already um, started to gain autonomy. So as the whole process of decentralisation um, and self-government had begun in earnest. So if we compare um, uh, deaths from the pre-Franco period to the post-Franco period, we actually see that there were mo more deaths four years in, in four years after Franco's death by Ida than in the years pre, um, to, prior to Franco's death. And Fusi, I think, puts it quite neatly when he writes, as a movement for the unification of Spanish and French Basque territories in an independent socialist Basque state, Ita could not accept the idea that the Basque problem might find a permanent solution in autonomy for the three Spanish Basque provinces within a Spanish constitution. And this, he says, was the reason behind Ita's spectacular escalation of terrorism after 1978. Uh, between um, 76 and 78, there were a few uh, amnesty laws passed in Spain, and particularly the 1977 amnesty bill freed all political prisoners, and this ranged from trade unionists, who we know um, did not have the right to strike under the Franco regime, but also 
it included Edateris. So there was a whole range of political prisoners who were um, freed from uh, jail. So threats to Spain's 1978 constitutional arrangement came from um, disenchantment, radical regionalism, terrorism, and army interventionism. And they're all linked to explain the 23F attempted military coup. In January, uh, so after uh, the reason, so the, the reason why we're in Parliament for the 23F military coup, what they're voting, so we saw that they were calling out names, um, and that's because they were voting for a new president. Um, president Suarez, who had been so popular during Spain's transition, wasn't doing so well at the time. Um, his party, the UCD, the Centre for Democratic, um, the Union for Democratic Centre, um, his party was crumbling. So he had no support from his party. Um, after all, it was a coalition party. So he had liberals, social democrats, um, uh, former Francoists. They were all together in this coalition party. So he, he had no support um, uh, anymore. So he'd... Uh, um, he'd handed in his resignation, and a new president had to be elected within Parliament. So the new president was um, his um, Suarez's second deputy prime minister and minister of economy, Leopoldo Calvo Sotelo. So his inauguration, President Calvo Sotelo's inauguration in Parliament, is when this 23F military coup takes place. And his government has to deal with... Um, uh, issues such as decentralization, terrorism, and army intervention, in addition to his own party's internal disunity. But he did manage to pass quite a few very important laws, but very polemic laws at the same time, such as the Divorce Bill and Spain's NATO entry. Um, so by the end of 1981, so by the end of the year the military coup takes place, um, oh, this was when he resigned. Yeah, this is where I wanted to go. Um, so by the end of 1981, the Guernica, so Pablo Picasso's world-famous painting, arrives um, in Spain. So Picasso, we know he joined the French Communist Party in the mid-40s and spent many decades of exile in southern France. And he painted this, um, the Guernica, in response to Nazi test aerial bombings of the um, town of uh, Guernica in northern Spain. And in his will, Picasso died in 1973, that's two years before Franco died. So in his will, Picasso left the Guernica to the government of Spain, but on one condition, democracy. So that was his condition. So the fact that the Guernica was arriving in Spain um, was proof, or artistic proof, if you will, that Spain was indeed a democracy, despite the 1981 attempted military coup. So he, um, so Picasso um, trusts his lawyer, Roland Dumas, who later became President Mitterrand of France's foreign affairs minister, um, to um, ensure that Spain was indeed a democracy. And Roland Dumas actually then closed Spain's um, European Economic Community membership deal. So we see here this link between um, democracy, art, and joining the European Economic Community. The painting's arrival, however, was also read at the time um, in terms of Spain's increasing anti-NATO sentiment. So um, I just said that uh, 
Spain during the Leopoldo Calvo Sotelo government joined um, NATO. It was already in an alliance, bilateral alliance with the US, but, this t but in um, the early 80s it joined uh, um, NATO as a multilateral organization. Now, this was very polemic, and partly um, it was the reason why it was so polemic uh, was because of this um, uh, rise of anti nuclear power groups in uh, throughout Europe, so the Green, green Parties are, are on the rise at the time, um, especially in West Germany. Also, Spain's decade-long international isolation, so that tradition of being isolated, um, uh, positions uh, against Franco as well, and um, the Socialist Party's hunger for votes. So let's not forget that the Socialist Party is still very much in the picture. So Felipe González's um, Socialist Party. So... Because President Calvo Sotelo is, um, his party is crumbling, he has no uh, support from his party, um, he calls for early elections. And Felipe González's Socialist Party win as landslide victory. It's still today the largest um, uh, victory. I mean, General Franco was probably not expecting that seven years after his death, the Socialist Party would be voted in with this major victory. Uh, the ruling party went from 168 seats to um, only 11. And the main opposition party then became Alianza Popular, who went from 10 to 106. The Socialist Party uh, won 202. Before we move on, I want to show you this this idea of the Guernica um, um, arriving in Spain as the last exile. It wasn't really an exile because the Guernica had been painted in Paris, and you still, still see the sign in, in a really nice house in the Latin Quarter in Paris that says the Guernica was painted here. So it wasn't really an exile, but the idea that um, Picasso's uh, great painting was going back to a democratic Spain was a very powerful one in um, Spaniards' imagination. So, with this new party in power, the Socialist Party, who, was, who actually campaigned um, with an anti-NATO discourse, um, we should ask ourselves, what was the United States thinking? Um, were they concerned about a Socialist Party coming into office who was campaigning against NATO? Um, so... Um, what uh, I think we should look at are, um, to answer this question are CIA reports. Because the idea of what the US was thinking when this gang of, Sp of young nationalists, as the Spanish Socialist Party was called in Washington, is, is something that we need to think about. So this CIA report, which you have some screenshots in your handout, um, so this CIA report on Spain's new socialist government was released in 2011. <clears throat> the CIA, so the Central Intelligence Agency, so sort of like the UK MI6, put together a report on Gonzalez's socialist cabinet as soon as he came to office in December 82. So as soon as um, President Gonzalez announces his cabinet ministers, the CIA puts a report together um, to, back, uh, to center headquarters saying, um, who are these people, who are these socialists? Um, so we don't um, actually know who 
wrote the CIA report because that information is redacted. Um, but we do know that it was the CIA's Europe Committee who wrote the report. And the report highlights that President Gonzalez's new cabinet is full of well-qualified ministers, many of whom, 9 out of 16, the report adds, are professional economists. So um, I think the significance of this um, will become more apparent next week when I talk about elite interviewing um, and what US Secretary of State Schultz thought of Gonzalez when he first met him. But for the time being, I think we should um, look at this idea of economists um, joining the cabinet and it being a particularly um, important point for, the, for a US CIA report um, in terms of the French um, government at the time being um, a coalition uh, government between President Mitterrand's <coughs> Socialist Party and the Communist Party and President Mitterrand's um, nationalization plan uh, program that was going on in France, which um, the US wasn't particularly happy about. So the report notes that several cabinet ministers were educated abroad, including um, the Minister for Education, who was José María Maraval, who, was, who studied here at Oxford, and we also mentioned him um, in the first lecture. Um, and, uh, and, and also Javier Solana, who then went on to become um, sec NATO Secretary General and uh, uh, the EU's high representatives. So um, these two were part of a broader gang, um, and the emphasis was on technical competence combined with youth. And the average age of the ministers is Gonzalez's own 40 years. That's quite young. In terms of ideology, um, the report notes that most of Gonzalez's ministers were social democrats. So in a way, it's sort of saying they're moderates. You don't really need to be particularly uh, concerned about them. The report, however, highlights that the source of tension is probably the new Minister of Foreign Affairs. Uh, and he calls him a prickly, um, the report calls him a prickly interlocutor for he is somewhat more leftist and doctrinaire than the rest of the cabinet. So the first page of your um, handout uh, ends with, in our view, Gonzalez will attempt to restrict Moran, so that's the name of a foreign affairs minister. So in our view, President Gonzalez will attempt to restrict Moran's autonomy and keep relations with the United States, Europe and Latin America that's basically explains the whole foreign policy, um, under his personal control. So here we see again this idea of um, quasi-presidential premiership um, that Paul Haywood talks about. So this uh, leads me to introduce next week's topic, which is Spain and the world. And I will be talking about Spain's re-engagement with the international system, especially um, it uh, joining European, the European Economic Community and NATO. And I'll talk about how to use elite interviews and historical research, and I hope to be able to share it with you a few new ones. Um, and, uh, and then we'll finish off with a book called Todas las Almas, um, All Souls, uh, by Javier Marias, and he wrote that in 1989, 
and um, it actually takes its name from All Souls College here in Oxford because Marias um, was a professor here um, and the narrator of the book was also a professor here. So there's that connection to Oxford. Um, so thank you for coming today and um, I hope to see you next week. Thanks.